This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Worth Your Time podcast on video. I'm Erica, your host, coming uh, to you from Indianapolis as usual. And I'm so excited today to talk with my guest, Caitlin Scheiss. Thank you so much for joining us, Caitlin. Yeah, thanks for asking me. Yeah, I know I've been talking with you for like several months. I keep popping <laughs> in. I'm like, I'm going to have you on the podcast. And it's just like life got crazy. And then there was Christmas. But I read yeah. your book, you know, I think even before it came out. And so I've been excited to talk with you this this concept of um, faith and politics and how they intertwine is is a passion of mine and something that I really care about. So I, I think I saw your book was coming out like, I don't know, at least six months before it was available and immediately was like, okay, that's for me. I've got to read that. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. And I saw Michael Weir was uh, writing your forward and I have such respect for him and the work that yeah. he does and has done with the Anne campaign and just his own writing. So, um, so I knew it was going to be great. Um, and so your book is called the liturgy of politics and, um, I want to get into that, but before we do, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, who you are and what you're doing these days. Yeah, so I am a, a seminary student at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas, and so I'm I'm in my last semester, which is really exciting. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, and basically from the time I started this program um, five years ago, which is crazy, I've been writing about faith and politics, and um, have been working at a local church in Dallas. So I've been doing um, ministry first with children and then with young adults, um, but then throughout all that time, writing about faith and politics, and and taking every opportunity in all of my classes. <laughs> to do that as well. Um, I went to school for political science and thought I was going to go to law school. And then God really redirected my path to, to seminary. And I kind of thought, okay, I'm done with that other stuff I was doing. And instead it has just continued to be more of the same, but from this different perspective of thinking about the church um, and thinking about spiritual formation in particular. That's awesome. You know, I myself recently, I've just really been digging into the Bible and, and have just gotten more and more interested in um, just how it all works together. And I have found myself for the first time in my life saying, man, I kind of would like to go to seminary. Like <laughs> I see what the draw is. Like even I don't want to be a pastor or anything like that. But the more you start to read about these things and see how anything, everything intertwines and how um, there's just so much to learn. It's like you yeah. you want to go. Um, so, so I, I was reading your bio on your website and, and I noticed that you were on the debate team in college, which I thought was yeah. very cool. Um, what inspired you to be on the debate team? I'm just curious. Yeah, I actually chose my college for that reason. I was like in high school, I was a military kid. So I went to a couple different high schools, a bunch of schools throughout my whole life. And we didn't have debate at those schools. We had speech tournaments. So I did that. But what I really wanted to do was debate. My parents would probably say it was just I liked arguing and <laughs> wanted to do that. But, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer and I really enjoyed talking about politics. And so I found a school that had a debate team. And honestly, like, 
I think I learned more in one year of each of those four years of debate than I did in all my classes combined the whole time I was in college. It was just so much research and so much experience having, you know, pretty heated conversations. With, I mean, because it was like the debates, but then I spent all my time with debaters. So like all <laughs> we did all the time was you know talk about politics and being at a Christian school, we talked about politics and faith. And so that was, I mean, I look back on that, like that was one of the most formative experiences of my life. Even now being more academically interested, it's like, it gave me great research skills, like all those things, but also it just, it meant that, you know, everyone in college is kind of going through figuring out what, you know, their parents taught them versus what they think. And, and I was in school by the time I finished was the 2016 election. So like really, you know, important for Christians. And we were talking about this stuff all the time, but I was doing it in this little kind of mini community at my college where everyone there cared about that stuff and wanted to talk about that stuff. And so it was, I can't speak enough about how much that was a great experience and something that like, I wish more people had experienced doing that because you spend a ton of your time talking about sources and just how to identify good sources and how to compare sources. And um, half the time I, you know, spent on Twitter now, I'm like, y'all should have <laughs> learned some yeah. of these things in college. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it never even occurred to me to do anything like that. And nowadays I feel very ill-equipped to do any debating mm -hmm. or arguing. I'm not very confident in, in those kinds of things, but it makes sense. And as I've, I've been really getting into lately, like, and I mean, lately, as in like the past few months, I've been getting into <laughs> apologetics and starting yeah. to realize how important that is for not necessarily our personal faith, but just in talking with other people about our faith and just how we sort of relate to the world and what it all means. And so I think it's so interesting. So, so on the debate team, though, you do have to Get, to argue for the other side on an mm -hmm. opinion that you don't agree with. So how did that sort of shape your respect for other people's opinions? Yeah, totally. I mean, I went into college having grown up in a Christian home and have gone to lots of different churches because we moved a ton. So we were at different churches, but very much the same <laughs> kind of churches and didn't really know there was much outside of that. And, and kind of had grown up the way a lot of Christians did of, you know, you're a Christian, you're a Republican. And my parents tell me these are the things that matter. And I just kind of, you know, you're, that's, that's part of the development of yourself is just kind of taking those things in and then having the time where you critically evaluate them and doing at a Christian school at a Christian school, I went to Liberty that was very politically involved throughout. I mean, very recently publicly, very politically involved, but has a long history of the way that Christians have, have been politically involved in some good ways and in some not good ways. And so it was kind of sometimes a bit of a scandal on campus throughout our history for people to realize that Liberty students were um, a few years before I was a debater. One of the topics was overturning one of a list of different Supreme Court decisions, including a Planned Parenthood one. And so like people were really scandalized that Liberty students were debating pro and con on this, <laughs> this Planned Parenthood decision. And but it was really important, you know, to not only be able to empathize with other people, but also to realize for me, at least how easily information, how much of what we receive as information is really spin on information and how the bare facts can be, you know, put together in different ways and, and can, I mean, it was really amazing to me, one debate to the next, I knew the spin to put on the different things. Um, and so on one hand, it really makes you realize how important it is not only to know your sources and know how to evaluate different kind of sources of information, but also just that at the end of the day, like you're going to have to find people that you trust, institutions that you trust, experts that you trust, because if there's anything I learned in debate, it's that unless you're going to spend the amount of time that we did every single day thinking about certain issues, 
it's impossible to really pull all those layers of bias and spin off of stuff. And so finding people that you really trust to help you navigate those things, it was just so clear how important that was. Yeah, I definitely think that's especially important right now. Um, yeah. A skill that people don't have. Um, I want to ask you about, so let's see, is, how long is seminary? Is it two years or three years? It's usually three years, okay. but I'm in an extra long program. So I am on my fifth year. Oh my goodness. Why, <laughs> yeah. What makes it longer? Is it you're not taking as many classes? So we have a full extra year of Greek and Hebrew that we take. And then I took my last fourth, what should have been my fourth year and slowed it down a little bit as I was finishing up writing my book. So. Wow. Okay, that's intense. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I was going to ask on that note was, how has going to seminary changed your relationship with God? Has it, have you, do you feel closer to God now that you know so much more? You know, it's so funny. Before I went to seminary, I feel like all I heard from everyone, people who had been to seminary, but also a lot of people who hadn't been to seminary, was just like, don't let your faith get dry and academic. And like, you know, it's going to be so hard to actually still care about your personal relationship with the Lord. And it's going to, and, and I'm sure that's true for some people. And I never want to make it sound like my experience is everyone's, but I am a nerd and I have loved <laughs> learning more. And honestly, I, I mean, one of my classes a few semesters ago, the professor said, if you do all your homework and the homework for that class was translating and then like grammatically evaluating different passages of the new Testament, so like not devotional type work, like really kind of technical stuff. He was like, if you do your work devotionally, whatever that means for you, I'll give you extra credit. And I remember a bunch of people in the class being like, what, how would we even do that? But for me, I was like, oh yeah. Like I translate this passage, I evaluate it grammatically. I think about all the different, you know, nuances of certain words and the way it's constructed. And like, of course that leads me to worship God. Like, I just don't know how it wouldn't be that way. And I recognize, like I said, for some people it's different, but for me, it's just, it's been so sweet to realize like, I'm never going to be done. I'm anticipating in eternity, learning more and more and, and reading things from Christians throughout history that um, on one level are so different, you know, things that feel very foreign to me. And then sometimes stumbling across things that I'm like, Oh, the same, <laughs> the literal same, you know, political problem or social problem. Or yeah. It's the same, you know? And so I have just, it's really made me, I, I feel like I'm just so often drawn to praise mostly for like, wow, I am so small and you are so large and there's no end to what I can learn about you. And one of my favorite things is I feel like every time, especially I have a certain passage of scripture that it's like, I'm writing a huge paper on this or I'm doing a big you know, project or whatever. Somehow it's always a passage, you know, of course, because it's seminary, it's a passage that's difficult or like has some problem in it or something. And I don't always leave a hundred percent satisfied with the answers, but every single time I feel like it's better than I thought it was going to be. Like God is better than I thought. How he's worked faithfully in the lives of his people is better than I, you know, even when I don't feel fully satisfied, I still feel being like, wow, that's, that truth is even better now that I've spent time studying it than it was before. And um, the when I talk to new students, the most thing I say is just like, if you start losing that, then like, you know, take some time, step back, figure out what's going on because that's the best part of all of this. Yeah, I, I've heard that, you know, oh, I've heard some, like some kind of phrasing, like, oh, you go to seminary and like people come out atheists or something like that, you know, just people, because yeah. it does, be, because it does become so dry. So that's really, that's awesome that you've had that, not the opposite experience of that. Um, yeah. So, okay. 
let's talk about, well, I wanted to ask you actually, I was looking at your tweets. Um, you tweeted last week on Wednesday. Uh, of course, I have to look through your tweets as a, as a podcast host. That's what you do. Um, but you tweeted last week, you, you were urging people, you know, uh, when we're speaking of the day that the Capitol was um, rioted and terrorized by these people that came in, um, you tweeted that people should read Revelation. And so I wanted to ask you, why did you urge people to do that? Yeah, I think I caveated something like I'm not being doomsday. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to, I go to a dispensationalist school. So people would be like, oh, she's telling us like, you know, the end times are coming. No, um, I just think, especially if you go into Revelation expecting to see a description in really dramatic terms and sometimes really confusing terms, but a really powerful description of especially political idolatry. I mean, early in the book, the description of these churches and what they're dealing with socially and politically, but then in this really um, symbolic language, a picture of the earth being submitted to an alternate, very with very political language, an alternate power, and then ending it with the return of Christ in very symbolic language, defeating that other power. And then especially in chapters 21 and 22, the the redemption of all creation of, you know, the image early in 21 of the one sitting on the throne saying, I am making all things new um, earlier than that saying, you know, God is with his people. They will be his people. They will be, he will be their God. I can't read that without just weeping. I mean, it's so beautiful, but I think sometimes revelation is really scary and confusing. I totally get it. <laughs> but then what, what we do because it's confusing is we tend to overly rely on just like someone explain to me what it means. I don't need to read it myself. Just like, tell me what it means. Or I'm going to go to this little passage that I understand or this little passage. And, and sometimes if you go in and just know, I'm not going to understand every word of it. There's going to be confusing parts, but I just want to read the whole story as a story. And, and you go in expecting to see that kind of really political language. And then you connect that with the world feels chaotic. It feels like there's political idolatry everywhere. Um, and in this particular moment, it seems like those forces are going to win, or it seems like, where is God in all of this? So to read that, I mean, especially it's not a hugely long book to just read it in one sitting and end with that powerful picture of, of who God is. It's just, that should be comforting to us, not in a super like left behind do this <laughs> sort of way, but in just like a, the truth of it is that, that Christ is returning and not returning to just kind of do what some Christians have been tempted in the past to do of just kind of rubber stamping current political authorities, but to take them out, you know, as he's the true king. And that's, that should just be comforting all the time. But I felt like it was especially comforting on Wednesday. Yeah. Thank you so much for explaining that. Yeah. I just actually, my whole life have avoided reading Revelation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have always, even as a kid, I've just, I just was always terrified of it. And of course I've read verses here and there, but I was always like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not gonna do that one. And I finally, finally just read it in December, the whole thing. <laughs> Cause good, I did good. the Bible here and I did it. Um, and I'm like, okay, yeah, there's some weird stuff. Like there's some stuff um, yeah. that I don't really want to think about necessarily. But uh, I do think it's so important. Every single word of the Bible has got something for you in it. And I think it's important to read it. And so, um, and then getting that, you know, just some guidance from someone like you, like this is a time to read it. Like it's good yeah. to know when those times are. So, um, so I want to talk about the book. Um, tell me, when did you start to have this concept in your mind? Like, oh, this could be a book. Like I could actually do this. Tell me about that. And then how did you go from that to, here it is in real life on the yeah. table. 
Yeah, I had no plans to write a book while in seminary. <laughs> that was not something I set out to do. Um, I pretty quickly upon starting seminary, though, I like I said, it was the 2016 election happened right my first semester. So we were talking about it on campus. And I felt like we were talking about it as students and like sometimes with professors outside of class. But I really felt like in our classes, there was so many things that were relevant to the conversation, but we weren't connecting them because we're scared and it's hard. And um, and I took a spiritual formation class that first semester where we spent so much time talking about um, not just the information we know in our in our minds, but the way that we are formed and shaped by the habits and rituals in our everyday life. And so I was seeing that in very political ways just because it felt like that was what was on my mind and started thinking about that. And then interestingly enough, um, Molly Worthen, who's a historian at UNC Chapel Hill, interviewed me for this piece that she was writing about evangelicals and politics. And this was probably a year after that, probably in 2017. And we were talking and, and I had been reading some James K. Smith, who he talks a lot about rituals and, and our desires, our loves. And in this conversation with her, it's so funny. It's like she was interviewing me. So I was just kind of answering. But the way that she the questions she asked and the conversation we ended up having crystallized so many things for me. I'm so like indebted to her for <laughs> forever for this. And I left that phone call and I just thought, wow, I think, I think I really want to start, you know, a period of time where I'm going to, I was going to do an independent study. I was talking about doing an internship. I'm just going to spend some time thinking about the intersection of spiritual formation and politics. And then I was working a full-time children's ministry job. I left that job because doing that full-time while being in school full-time and writing, it was it was way too much. I was so stressed. I left that job, but also sort of felt like a failure for not being able to juggle all those things. And on the actual day that I quit that job, I went to a classroom, one of our like children's classrooms to cry <laughs> because I was just like, what am I doing? I'm such a failure. And I get an email on my phone from uh, Caitlin Beatty, a woman that I so respect and have for a long time, had no idea she knew who I was. She was working at uh, InterVarsity Press at the time. And she was just like, have you thought about writing a book? Are you interested in writing a book? Is there something you want to write a book about? And it was like, this was like days after I'd had this moment where I thought, I think I need to spend a period of time just thinking about this one thing. And it was so perfectly timed. And I think if anything other than that had happened, I would have just, there's no way I would have done this because it seemed really crazy. And instead it was like, oh, God has just so perfectly aligned all of these things. Um, put a professor in my path who was willing to let me do an internship, not for her, I mean, for her, but to just write my book <laughs> instead of, you know, working for her, um, which gave me class credit. Like everything just sort of like came together for it perfectly. And now when people say like, how did you do that while you were in school? It's like, I just, I was at a seminary that, that, helped me that gave me resources. And um, I took every opportunity in every class to, you know, shift my research a little bit for what I was supposed to do into <laughs> something relevant yeah. to the book. And now I think, I mean, I'm just so thankful that it really feels like this was a product of a community. Um, and I don't know that everyone always gets, I think to a certain degree, that's true of every book, but I don't know that everyone gets to experience it quite the way that I did. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. I mean, definitely being in seminary would, would help you in shaping your ideas. <laughs> now you talk about spiritual formation and I think sometimes people hear that word and they're like, what does that mean exactly? So how would you define that? Yeah, I say, I mean, I find it really broadly. Some people would kind of limit it to things like spiritual disciplines or the worship of the church and how those things that we're kind of intentionally doing to form us spiritually, how they shape us. Um, and I would just kind of broaden it because I don't think our lives are segmented into spiritual and non-spiritual things the way we tend to think they are. And so for me, spiritual formation is anything that forms us spiritually. And especially in the context of the book, I use the word liturgies a lot to just to describe 
repetitive embodied things that impart a larger story to us. And so that's why in the book, it's like, I think our worship, our spiritual disciplines are spiritually formative because they're repetitive or embodied. They impart this larger story. But then our media consumption habits, the you know habits that we have about who sits at our table, the grocery store we shop at, the school we're at, all of those are repetitive, embodied, and impart a larger story to us and shape us spiritually. And so if we limit that to just disciplines and the worship of the church, I think we're really missing a lot of what is impacting us in ways that we might think, oh, that's just giving me political information, or oh, that's just where I shop, or those are just the people I tend to know. No, those things are forming you, not just kind of in an everyday way, but in a deeply spiritual way, and sometimes in ways we don't always realize. Yeah, I think, you know, some people, like, as you talk about in the book, uh, these these liturgies or rituals that we're doing without realizing it. And, and so I guess looking at the Christian landscape, landscape specifically um, in the United States, what, what are maybe some of those unconscious uh, or subconscious uh, rituals that you see Christians doing that aren't helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest ones, um, especially as we're just coming out of, I mean, I guess not just anymore, it feels like this election, there's no election season <laughs> anymore, it's just yeah. election all the time. Right. But especially in, the, in this last election season, it felt like our media consumption habits were things that I thought people are not just uncritical, I mean, it's pretty common right now to say, hey, make sure you're diversifying your sources, make sure you're not listening to one thing exclusively. But just thinking about like, not just what you're watching, but the habits you have about watching or reading or listening. You know, I was got, went through a period of time where I would get up in the morning and the very first thing I would do was listen to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal podcasts, like daily news podcasts. And I still do that, but I no longer do it first thing in the morning <laughs> because <laughs> I realized that it was it was not healthy for me. It wasn't a good spiritual practice for the very first thing in my ears and in my mind in the morning just to be, you know, whatever the new thing that was happening was, especially during COVID is when I realized it because it was just COVID information ever, you know, and I went, this is. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Causing me to be not in an appropriate state of caution, but in a state of fear that is spiritually harmful for me, and I need to figure out how to fix that. So not just what we're listening to, but when we're listening to it, the posture of our hearts when we're listening to it, and our attentiveness and our critical, you know, thinking while we're listening to it. You know, I try and I have like a little thing on my wall over here that has a list of questions about what is this asking me to love? Who is it asking me to hate? What story is it asking me to live into? What vision of the good life is it kind of giving me? And if we're not asking those questions, especially of you know, things like video and audio that can have such a really, you know, strong pull on our heart, our emotions, our desires, 
we're going to really, we're going to be in a place we didn't mean to be. We're going to learn desires and fears we didn't mean to learn. Um, so things like that. But another big one for me is looking at our habits of, and it's hard with COVID right now, but this could be a good time to think about it before we're back in a post COVID world, but thinking about our habits in terms of who's around our table, what kind of, you know, people that are, they all like us, are they not? And what parts of our neighborhood and our community are regular places for us to be. And the reason that that matters to me, the table one should be obvious, you know, do I have relationships with people who are different from me and not just relationships where I serve them, but relationships where they bring a pot of food to my house and I, you know, have a meal with them. But then also, you know, am I exposed to the diversity, even in my own neighborhood? I live in Dallas and like one neighborhood over, two neighborhoods over is a different world from where I'm at. And am I, are my habits for where I go to shop and the school, you know, the community center that I see and the, the place that I vote, do I have habits where I'm around other people, I'm exposed to the needs of other people, and I'm not kind of siloed in the one place I'm in. And I think things like that, where we send our kids to school, where we grocery shop, all those things, um, we could be making exactly the right decisions right now, but sometimes we're just uncritical when it comes to thinking about those things as habits that form us in spiritual ways. I love all those questions that you said. Did you say those were written on your wall or something? Yeah. <laughs> I think those are such great questions. I mean, I don't know for people that were listening, maybe I'll go back and like type those out. But I think it's just like even having that intention, like, yeah. uh, you know, even throwing out like, how are we going to change the culture and all of these things, right. even just starting small like that and having your own personal intentions about what you're doing and listening and watching that right there can really be the seed to to start to make a difference, not in just your own life, but but in in the the country as a whole. So I think those are great. Um, now you talked about, and I love this concept in your book. I also interviewed um, Megan Westra. You know her? Oh yeah, yeah. So I told her I was sort of like read your books like right in a row, and I noticed some similar themes. <laughs> and one of those themes that I loved so much, and it was something that I truly just had not thought about much before was this concept of um, like the more modern conservative church, a Christian church, just um, of the Jesus and me relationship where it's it's all about this personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And like, if you raised your hand at the service and you went forward and you accepted Jesus as your savior, like you're good, that's your ticket to heaven and like end of story. But when you read the Bible and you look at Acts and, and you look at the Old Testament too, like you see that that it's never been about one person. It's never, yeah. it's always about a people and it's always about this community and the church. And so much of, I guess, the modern thought process ha has eliminated the importance of that like community side of things. And like you talk a lot about uh, mm -hmm. communal scripture reading and, and you don't see that much anymore. And how yeah. by doing that with other people, you're hearing those verses and you're thinking about how you, how they apply not just to you, but to the people standing beside you and to the people in the larger mm -hmm. world. So um, I don't know what my question is. I guess it's just that, you know, how did this happen? How did we go from, this focus on a people in the church to this, you know, it's Jesus in me and that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of it is just outside the church. There was a, you know, philosophical shift through like the modern age of being more individually focused and less communally focused. Um, and then that resulted in, you know, across the world, more like pietistic expressions of the Christian faith. It's more about me and kind of my inner disposition, my heart, um, less about what I do and also less about the community that I'm a part of. But 
Um, I one of the things that I think about a lot, partially because I have been to, been at so many churches, grew up all over the country, you know. But one of the really more consistent things is the difference that I think happens in a community when things like communion and baptism are communal events and not individual events. Um, even in the sense of like, you know, I went to a church when I was in high school where you literally, you know, yes, like a lot of churches, you go up to the front and receive communion, but they wanted you to take it and then kind of go into a dark corner by yourself to think about you and Jesus and take it. And there could be really good intentions behind things like that. But it was just one of those moments when I thought what a missed opportunity and what like a seemingly small thing that kind of still reinforces in people's minds. The important thing is me and Jesus and my relationship with him, not I mean, communion, like of all of the things that is supposed to be about the people of God communion. together, <laughs> communion, you, know, you would think that that would be something. But I just, I think, again, it's that thing of we're not critically reflecting on, not just because I think in a lot of evangelical churches, we'd go, well, our theology about what communion means is right. Okay, that's good. But if the way that we're practicing it with our bodies, you know, if if we lo lower the lights and we've got some fog and we've got loud music and you can't even tell that anyone is around you while you're doing it that's teaching people something about themselves and their community. Even if the sermon that's about communion next week is all correct doctrinally and good, they're not, they're learning that, but they're also learning from the way that you practice it every single week or, or for some churches, you know, once a month or whatever, they're learning things from that. And are we critical enough of, is the practice of the thing teaching the correct, you know, nature of it, not just the words that we say or the doctrinal, this is one of my big things is, we know we'll pull out a doctrinal statement in a church and be like, this is what we believe. You can't really know until you go to a service. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't really know what's actually kind of communicated through the way we do things, not just the doctrinal statement that we would write down. Yeah. Well, and then that, that sort of leads me to my next question, which is, okay, so a lot of people don't think of, people think of earth and then they think of heaven and they're not thinking like, that something that we're doing here on earth is going to be a continuation into what happens in heaven. And you talk about, let me, I want to find the quote because I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> but uh, let's see here. You said, instead of viewing this life, including our political participation during it as biding our time until true citizenship is fully realized in heaven, we should view our engagement in this age as a glimpse and foretaste into the future. Um, so I think some people have never thought of this. They've never thought about how the work that we do now, in, including how we engage in politics, is going to somehow feed into heaven later. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to, again, we're not, we should read Revelation. <laughs> we should read Revelation 21 and 22. Um, and we should think about, you know, one of the, the first class I took in seminary, one of the very earliest things that we learned that now I, I grade for this class a lot. So I get to hear it, you know, over and over and over again to new people. And I forget sometimes that the first time I heard it, it was like, mind blowing for someone who grew up in the church their whole life. And I was like, what is this story I've never heard before? of connecting the very beginning of the story, humans created good, creation, the world made good. And, you know, both men and women given this commission to rule and reign, to steward creation, to take what God has given them and, and create new things to add human creativity to it. How that very much mirrors, but but is in some important ways different than the description in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new Jerusalem, of a city where God dwells with his people on earth, where creation is redeemed. And a city of all things is a picture of human creativity added to God's good gifts. And so there's development from that garden to the city, but there's also some similarities of 
your commission to create flourishing communities hasn't changed. It's there in the beginning, it's there at the end. And so to me, that's a picture not only of, okay, if those two things are important at the beginning and the end, then that changes how we think about what we do now. But it also means that things aren't, you know, it's not just practice, it's good practice. We should practice, you know, seeking reconciliation in families, seeking justice in our communities, you know, even small things like baking bread and arranging flowers and like doing just like good, beautiful things. Those are practice for work that we'll do forever and redeem creation. God hasn't changed that commission for us. But then to add to that, are those good acts, like a really truly beautiful spirit empowered act of reconciliation, of justice, of good creativity, those things will continue in through, you know, into the new creation. There's a description of, you know, the kings bringing in their good things from the nations and just recognizing that they will be appropriately redeemed. You know, it's not like we have to work on our own merit here to kind of create the new heavens, new earth. God is doing that without us. <laughs> you know, we are not able to create that ourselves. And yet our participation, like all good things, right? I would say if I witness to my friend and they become a believer, that was a work of the Holy Spirit, yet it was important for me to be faithful and obedient to share the gospel with them. The same thing is true of those kinds of acts of like planting a community garden and doing good work politically. And those are things that, if any good is going to come out of it, it is spirit empowered. It is God's action and not mine. And yet it is faithful and obedient for me to continue to participate in it, not only because it's good on earth, but because it witnesses to what we'll do for eternity. Yeah, that's so good. Um, so I want to ask you about this term, evangelical, <laughs> fully loaded. <laughs> yep, um, yep. Like when you hear that word, because to me these days, when I, I get kind of annoyed with the term just because People say like, oh, evangelical voters where where and I don't really necessarily think evangelical represents Christian anymore. I, I think of evangelical as a cultural, cultural Christian tag or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yet it's somehow still like those of us who are Christians, we are many of us at least are grouped into that. So what do you think? Has this term changed over time? I mean, I know it's you read a little bit about the religious right and the moral majority. So what is your take yeah. on all that now? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how, you know, originally evangelical was the difference from, you know, between evangelical and fundamentalist. So you wanted to be an evangelical and not a <laughs> fundamentalist. It's just funny how those words change. Um, I think it's both helpful to think about, you know, people will talk about the Bebbington quadrilateral, which is like the four things that you know, theologically in terms of belief, you know, define an evangelical. I think that can be helpful. And if I look at that list, I go, I'm an evangelical. Like I believe conversion matters. You know, I believe in a, in uh, the authority of scripture, all those four things. Um, and yet, like you said, there's certainly, I mean, it's just undeniable that there's an element of it. That's a cultural thing. Um, primarily white Americans who are Protestant, who kind of hold to certain political views. That's how it tends to be used often. Um, for me at the end of the day, I recognize how tainted that word has become politically. And yet what I wanna do is both live as faithfully as I can so that whatever word is attached to me doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? Christian. I mean, cause Christian in some contexts has just the same level of just bad connotations. Um, for someone to be able to say, well, that doesn't match Caitlin. Like, you know, whatever connotations I have about evangelical, that doesn't match her. But secondly, I mean, I feel a certain level because I grew up in evangelical churches because that's been a word associated with all the communities of faith that I've been a part of. I feel a certain level of responsibility to keep using the word and try and make it better, um, try and be more faithful, try and um, encourage the communities, the churches that I'm in to be more faithful um, and hope that that helps instead of, I think a lot of people, 
um, especially, you know, younger evangelicals will just be like, done, <laughs> done with that word. It's too loaded. And I fully understand that. And I think in certain contexts and spaces, you know, I, in the middle of seminary, I started working at a popsicle store, which is a whole weird That's story. Fun. But <laughs> it was fun. And, but I met a lot of people who weren't Christians. I would never have used the word evangelical with them. Most oh, people, no. They probably, they wouldn't have even known probably what it meant. And if they did know what it meant, it would have probably meant voted for Donald Trump. Like that's probably all it yeah. would have been. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't use it there, but, um, I don't shy away from using it in contexts where I think it will be generally understood, mostly because I want to be able to say the the negative connotations you have don't define it. You know, I want it to be defined by the things that it should be theologically defined by. And I yeah. don't want to expect the most marginalized people in evangelical churches, especially our black brothers and sisters, to feel the responsibility of changing it because mm -hmm. I don't think they need to. But I want to feel that responsibility to be like, I want to make us better for us. Yeah. So when you look at last Wednesday and what happened, um, so when I when I saw that, I was thinking, like to me, I wasn't thinking that's a bunch of Christians, like <laughs> you know what I mean. But I'm seeing a lot of people that maybe are defining it that way, or they're really seeing the evangelical Christian influence because there were some signs, there were some crosses, some yeah. Jesus stuff, Christian music. Um, I mean, do you do you see that as as part of the political ideology within Christianity um, that took place? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I there's been a lot of talk, as you said, of, of people kind of being like, you know, how responsible do we have to feel for this? And on one level, I just want to say, I think the more Christian posture is always repentance instead of defensiveness. And so if there's any, you know, sense that we should feel some level of responsibility. I think it would be more Christian to say, let's take that on, not if it's completely dishonest or not if we're being unfairly maligned, but just to kind of say, we're willing to acknowledge that we're capable of more evil than we realize. We should be the first people <laughs> to be like, we are capable yeah. of more evil than we're we are. We're the ones that believe that the human heart is right. not good. <laughs> we have, we are the ones that have the most reason, you know, to think that. And, and then on the other hand, to just, to kind of, I know in my own contexts, that whether or not, I, I don't know anyone who was there. I don't know anyone yeah. who was like literally storming the Capitol rioting, but I know a lot of people who believe some of the same things that motivated that action. And so for me, it was more of a, this should be for anyone who hasn't really felt like this was really dangerous and important. It should be a wake up call to go in our churches. We can't continue turning a blind eye when people are being blatantly dishonest politically or when they're believing conspiracy theories or when they, it doesn't mean we can't have legitimate disagreements, of course, but it does mean we can't act like there's no harm <laughs> to our communities being associated with those things. It means that not only do we have to say, hey, that's not my Jesus, that doesn't represent us, but the added level of not just kind of, oh, that's not our people, because it is some of our people, instead of going, okay, how can we with our actions and not just our words, show that we don't want that to be our community. And, and and that's so dependent on a local context. It's so important. I said something on Twitter a while back about like, I don't know what you should tell your people about what happened. I mean, I know you should tell them the truth, but I don't know exactly what they need to hear, but it requires pastors and leaders and, and, and moms and dads and families, you know, just being honest with their people and saying, here's this really awful thing that happened. Here's why it probably will, you'll probably hear it was connected to people that we are and people we care about our community how can we live our lives so that it's harder and harder for them to associate us with that? And how can we tell the truth to the people in our communities that are getting closer and closer to that to hopefully stop them from ever, I don't think anyone storming the Capitol ever thought that's what they 
where they would be one day. <laughs> you know, no, there was years not. and years ago where they were falling down a rabbit hole of YouTube conspiracy theory. You know, how do we stop that at an earlier state in our communities instead of going, oh, it's not that big a deal. That's not a hard, you know, how do we be as honest um, and have as much integrity as we can? Oh, so many things come to mind. One, one is, and I never remember who said this quote, but or maybe, I don't think it's a Bible verse. <laughs> you would know. Um, but, so it's a quote that's like, um, you know, live your life in such a way that if someone was speaking badly of you, that no one would believe it. And mm -hmm. so I think that's always such a good one to cling to because no matter what's happening, we can always do that. And um, the other thing that I was going to say is just, um, you know, that's, I think it shows the importance of, as Christians, if we're talking about Christians that are involved in this, discipleship. Like, if you are number one going to church and involved in your church community, and if you're being discipled, if you're having people hold you accountable and you're asking questions about things and you're thinking intentionally, what's the right and wrong thing to do? You're you're not going to get to that place. You're just not going to end up hanging off the balcony at the Capitol, you know, or whatever, um, yeah. you know, because it's you know even those people like they're not necessarily like evil, but they. Right somehow have gotten in this warped world of sin and ended up there. And, and like, there's a way to stop that from happening, but you have to be intentional about it. Um, what I wanted to ask you next was just, so obviously you care a lot about the church and the church is very important. I love all of your sections on that. Um, but obviously 2020, we've seen a lot of people can't go to church. We've been online yeah. church. A lot of people still aren't going to church. And so I wonder if that, you know, not being there has made it all worse, has made the tribalism worse, has made the political ideology worse, because when we don't have our real religion in front of us so much, then then we're going to this other religion. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I mean, I'm really thankful that my church early in all of this was like, we are going to do what we have to do. We're going to sacrifice our worship preferences so that we can keep our community safe. We're going to, and now we require masks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do think my, the, the most optimistic part of me says this should drive all of us to desire in-person communion more when we can get it, when it's safe to have it in whatever, you know, give up some of your rights to wear a mask. If it means you can, you know, be with your people, you know, things like that. Um, but the pessimistic part of me thinks a lot of people love, being in their pajamas and sitting on the couch watching church on Sunday morning. And um, I think there's going to be, at least in my church, we had conversations months ago where we were like, when this all finally starts to really, really be done, it's going to be like, we're starting all over again with our ministries, with, you know, a service that we have, or with a Thursday night Bible study, whatever. it's like, we're starting all over. And that's, and that's really scary. But at the same time, we've had this reckoning over the past few months about who we are as a church, uh, what we really believe, how we interact politically. And so again, the hopeful part of me, um, which is not always the part that comes out, but the hopeful part of me says, could this really be an opportunity as we start to come out of the pandemic in the next few months for us to kind of evaluate how have we been worshiping together? What are our priorities? How are we going to be different forward, you know, moving forward? Um, I think we've lost a lot. Like you said, I do think it's just amped up our polarization in our churches, our inability to talk to one another. And yet I also think it's just revealed what was already there. I know at least a lot of churches in Dallas, I've talked to so many people about this. We have, you know, really intergenerational churches, but the younger people and the older people are not, we have no opportunities where we're really talking to each other. And so the last few months seem like, oh, all of a sudden there's all this conflict. Well, it was there. We just, we didn't have something that revealed it for us. And so 
the the part of it that we lament is the part that says that conflict was always there, that divide was always there. The benefit of any kind of revelation like that is that we know what we're dealing with and we can move forward and try and and try and be more faithful. But it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. Everyone, I mean, people should be praying for their pastors and for the the staff in their churches because between politics and race stuff this summer and COVID stuff, it is just, it is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I've been going to church. Um, like our church meets, we have, we, you know, we do masks and social distancing and everything, but it's very, very low attendance. I mean, it's like hardly anything. And, uh, so I, you know, it's like, I don't know what it's going to look like when things get back, but I agree. Like I've been thinking like it is going to be like starting over, you know, and I think a lot of it, like I've been of the mindset that a lot of this is like the pruning of the branches where we're going to get back to the, um, you know, the core like elements or the, you know, just the, the things that really matter are actually going to help us thrive yeah. in the future. We're getting back to that, which is a good thing. Um, but it's also really hard because you see all these yeah. things falling to the ground and it's scary. Yeah. Um, but I think it's good. And I think God is doing something, even if we can't really necessarily see the full picture right now. Um, well, Caitlin, I could ask you a million more questions about your book. I encourage everyone to read it. Before you go, though, I want to ask you, who have you been reading, listening to? What can you recommend in, in that regard? And I'm sorry I didn't ask you to prepare for that. I know sometimes it's hard on the spot. <laughs> No, you're good. You're good. Um, you know, the one thing and people I'm sure have heard this already, but the one thing I've been recommending constantly right now is Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. I mean, it's it's just so good and it's so necessary. And he has a video series, if you haven't seen on Amazon, that goes mm. through. Um, so you could read the chapters of the book with a group of people and then, you know, get together and watch the videos. And I mean, even just for myself, it's been so helpful, but it's been one of the number one things I've given to people um, at my church who are like, help me understand what's going on and help me understand specifically like why do we have to care so much about this as the church for to, to be able to say look at how we have not been anything close to separate from this we have been deep into it and so how can we uh, move forward and untangle ourselves from it and, and be more faithful yeah that's that's a good reminder um that i that i got from someone else actually when i was talking with um rachel welcher she was saying how she wanted her mm -hmm. book um, to be read with groups, like she included discussion questions, yeah. and how and the importance of of reading this kind of stuff with other people, so that you're not sort of ingesting and interpreting an idea in your own mind, and and yeah. then maybe you're wrong, or maybe you're getting it wrong, and then no one's there to tell you, and you're like living life thinking that you've yep. got it. You need people. This stuff is important. Like you need people yeah. to talk it out with, especially when we're talking about a lot of the stuff in your book, which is. You know, people may have different opinion, opinions on some of that stuff, yeah. but you need to be talking about it because otherwise it, it could get sort of distorted in, in how you're yeah. interpreting it. So I think that's great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I know you've probably done a million podcasts, so I appreciate <laughs> you um, taking the time to be too. online today. Thank you so much, Erica. This episode was brought to you in part 
by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.